on the road again Just can't wait to get on the road again The life I love is making music with my friends And I can't wait to get on the road again On the road again Going places that I've never been Seeing things that I may Hello, welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And in this episode, I will be finishing up my look at Roughing It by Mark Twain. Which is the third, actually already, even though we're still early in the series, it's already the third autobiographical work by Twain we've looked at. And we got several more coming, so that's... Uh, that's uh, kind of what you sign up for when you're when you're reading Mark Twain. It's not just the novels and short stories and 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 satire and things like that. It's uh, a lot of uh, a lot of autobiography. So we we have a good idea of his of his life and experiences, especially the more dramatic stuff. Um. So let's 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 talk about Mark Twain's Civil War. Um. As we finish up here, um, book this book's published 1872. It covers things that happened to him basically during the Civil War and a little bit after. So uh, 1861, he serves in a Confederate militia, maybe for, for two weeks. Uh, then he, uh, his brother gets um, a job as Secretary of the Nevada Territory. He goes there. Uh, Samuel Clemens follows um, and goes on various adventures as we've recounted. Um, and then eventually becomes a, a silver prospector, as everyone else is, in this kind of early frontier days. And that's kind of been my emphasis in this last few episodes, has been the nature of this frontier and how ephemeral it was. How, like, these characteristics that we gravitate towards when we think about the Old West, independence, uh, that kind of democratic capitalism, that... Uh, violence and all that that gets washed away none of that is useful for actually extracting wealth from the frontier right what's really valuable is is entirely a different set of values like submissiveness and and uh, wage labor and things that would have been foreign to the people in Virginia City at the time of uh, of, of Mark Twain's residence there Anyways, he, he tries it, and then he, he fails, and he, he becomes, as most people failed, but, but he's lucky. He knew how to write, and he had been like practicing his writing, and he gets taken in by, the, by various uh, newspapers in, in Virginia City. They publish his work, and he eventually joins the staff of the Enterprise, right? And that's what we talked about in the last episode, is how he really uh, um, got his experience in, in journalism through through his work with, with the Enterprise. Um, now, as we get to the final parts of Roughing It, it kind of becomes a different book because it doesn't seem to very well fit what he's saying, which is really about Nevada. But the full last quarter of the book is about California and Hawaii in particular. So why is that? Well, um, in a way, it's like the short time he's in Nevada which is really just 1861 to 63, um, where he leaves in early 64. So the early half of the first half of the war, he's in Virginia City, essentially. And that's about how long it takes for that moment that he just happened to be there to witness to die, right? Because if you were to come back 
even a couple years after that, you would be in the realm of, of big capital. Uh, in that, you know, the Wild West was such a, just a moment, right? It's really like if you watch Deadwood. That's a great example. What I, one thing I like about that show too is it it is so short, and it's like you go from from that kind of equality of conditions to some brutal capitalist tyranny in in a few years, which is really how it happened, right? That's empire worked fast once it was going. Once the land was conquered and opened up to settlers, it didn't take long for capital to move in. In fact, capital could move in faster in many ways than people. You know, it could move in more rapidly. Um, and that's, that's what happens. So the West, that's why you have these ghost towns, right? It's because it's not efficient to run an economy with all these little small towns, right? It's the, you run it from the big cities, right? If you've taken your like human geography class, you kind of understand uh, how economies of scale function around cities. So anyways, he um, now while he's while Mark Twain is writing for the Enterprise, he goes to San Francisco and does some like correspondence writing for newspapers in San Francisco, like the Californian. Uh, it's about this time that he writes his celebrated jumping frog story, Jim Smiley and his jumping frog story, which we'll probably get to in, you know, in months later, you know, at least well, th- at least three volumes before we get to that. Um, but we'll talk about it. Um, that gets published in the Saturday Press, a New, a New York New York Journal. But I think it started; it was published locally and then spread around. Um, now it's at this time, it's in 1866, after the Civil War, that he goes on this trip, a five-month journey to the Hawaii to Hawaii to Hawaiian Islands. Now this is another space that's in the process of being being colonized, but it's a little bit different in that there's still a state there. There's still a state that's not the United States. You have American merchants there, you have whalers there, you have uh, uh, various people involved in the China trade, living and working in there. It is semi-colonized and certainly being settled. It's a very welcoming place for Americans because American power is already established there, but it's not an American colony yet. It wouldn't be until till this till the eighteen to the to, to, to really till nineteen hundred or so until the Spanish American War and. You know, that's not directly involved with that, but it's in those those years of the Spanish American War that Hawaii gets annexed. Um, and of course it doesn't become a state until after World War II. So he goes on this and he's re- it's kind of very much like the Quaker City trip, the Innocence Abroad trip, where he's writing letters back to to the newspapers for the audience. And I think I get the feel actually that some of these chapters at the end of Roughing It were extracted. I, can, I don't know that for sure. But I get the sense that it reads a little bit more like Innocence Abroad. And that's why at some points I was kind of losing interest. Because what I really liked about Roughing It was how it really could get into the nitty gritty of this moment of frontier history. And we kind of spend the whole last part of this book in a travel log again, where it's Mark Twain going around and, and making observations about things and, and how this is different than America. And oh, isn't that weird? And look at how the, the king's court, how goofy they are. And look at the taboos and look at gender relations here and all that. But, but anyways, let me move on with the story of Mark Twain's life a little bit before I go back to what is being said in these final chapters of Roughing It. So he's working... Um, for the Alta California after this. Um, 
he's hoping to move to move up to New York or something to other journals, and he's working in, for the Alta California. So he kind of becomes a California writer at this point after his brief moment in Nevada. But he's certainly smart enough to know that even though it was only a short time he was working there, that it's super interesting and there's a market for talking about that. And it's, I think it's really central to his character and his identity. And like if you remember how he talks about Lake Tahoe all the time in Innocence Abroad, comparing everything he sees to Lake Tahoe, it's like he realizes the, the appeal of Nevada more than maybe California, right? Because he doesn't really... California is sort of civilized. It's not frontier. It, it's not... It's not a contact zone. It's not anymore. It's not a space of... It's just a space where capital's already taken over. And therefore, in the, in the narrative here, it's less interesting. At least compared to Nevada and Hawaii. Um, or the Mormons, or these other kind of transitional spaces in the Great West. And I think we include Hawaii, in, in, at least partially, into, the, into this Great West. Although it's not geographically continuous. All right, it is the Alta California, though, this newspaper that sends him on the Quaker City trip. He does that, and then that's really when he, his name takes off after that. In 1869, he publishes Innocence Abroad. A few years after that, he publishes Roughing It. Uh, and then in 1873, a year later, he publishes his first novel, Gilded Age, with, with Charles Dudley Warner co-writing it. Um, and then we're, we're off to the races, right? Tom Sawyer... Huckleberry Finn, The Prince and the Pauper. Actually, The Prince and the Pauper is between the two. And we'll get to that next time. So, there's a lot of the life of Mark Twain discussed in this, in this book. And a very important moment. It's really about him starting his career. In that sense, that's the personal relevance of it. Um, and there were different paths he could have taken. So, um, let's talk about his adventures in California and Hawaii just a little bit before we kind of wrap up this series. Um, now, Roughing It actually feels, it, and sometimes it feels like a little novel I'm thinking of, because we kind of go to Hawaii, and I was thinking about Taipei, because that Taipei, or is it Omu, it's one of the two, I think it's Taipei, ends with this like environmental history of, of Hawaii. It's kind of out of nowhere, but it's really good stuff about just how empire, American empire in its early stages, just devastated the ecology of, of Hawaii, right? I think he talks about the pigs coming in and just destroying the local environment, destroying the local crops and devastating the natives' agriculture and things, just like what happened in, you know, in, in America with the hogs and things when the Spanish came in. But the other way it, it feels like uh, Melville novel is Twain kind of having this search for fulfillment and satisfaction, right? He, he's very much like a, a Melville hero here, always kind of quitting his job and moving on to the next thing and bouncing from one thing to another, never happy in one place. Very much an attribute that's so key to the American West is that moving around of not being settled, right? Now, obviously, only a few people have that. Most people do settle. Most people don't even move to the West in the first place, right? Most people are content where they're at. But there's this, uh, there's those few that are able to venture out. And they become like a, they're like a force of disruption almost. Because they're not contained. Now, I think what modern capitalism has done, 
our world is basically uh, made that an advantage, made that attribute uh, like tamed it in a way, and then forced it on people who who aren't comfortable. That's why we have all this anxiety. It's like like can I buy a house here? It's expensive, but maybe I can afford it. But who knows if we're going to be here, right? I'm on the gig economy, or you know, I, I I don't know if I'll keep my job, right? Elon Musk might buy my company and fire half the staff. Who knows, right? You can never feel confident in where you are. And capital, late capitalism, has kind of monetized that that restlessness. But I think it was the reason it's so it causes so many of us anxiety is it was always the domain of a few, right? That that kind of pioneer spirit. Most of us couldn't have it. Mark Twain seems to have it. Because he has that dis- discontent. There's always right under the surface like a, uh, a, a vibration of, of, of tension about where he should be. He's always happier around the next corner. So this, just, this isn't just uh, me kind of thinking of Melville when he got to Hawaii. Because he sort of says as much. He talks about this restlessness that he feels. He writes... I was out of debt, but my interest in my work was gone for my correspondence being a daily one without rest of re- respite. I got unspeakably tired of it. I wanted another change. The Vagabond Institute was strong upon me. Fortune favored, and I got a new breath, a new birth a del- and delightful one. So this, this is before he goes off to California. So he's kind of has an anxiety, right? So it's something I want to keep my eyes on as I, as I kind of follow his career over the next few weeks months however long it takes is how you know is there not just as a theme in his stories which i i think there is a lot of that i mean there's so much travel in these works um you know even his novels are in some ways about travel um whether it's being lost in a cave or traveling on the mississippi or traveling through time or traveling through france with joan of arc or whatever Now, his moral at the end of the book, he gives a moral at the end of the book addressing how creativity emerges from the spirit of restlessness. He writes, if you are of any account, stay at home and make your way by faithful diligence. But if you are of no account, go away from home and then you will have to work, end quote. Which the, the idea of have to work, it's, you know, kind of triggers me a little bit. But nevertheless, I really like this, this idea. It's like, if you stay where you're at, you just do what you do and you'll survive, hopefully, right? You'll, you'll make it through life in a certain way. But if you go from home, then you have to work because you're, not, tie, you're tie, not tied to the community. You're not tied to your home. And again, when this is a minority of the people, even as, in as mobile a country as the United States, right, there is that, um, you know, it's not most people who, who are always traveling to new places. It's always a subset, right? And even when my immigrants come to the United States, like a huge percentage of them went back to Europe. I think it was like half ended up back in Europe after a couple of years. They just didn't make it in America. But so there, there is a gravity to life, right? But again, I want to return to the world we live in today where capital wants us to move around we are best we're most profitable if we're interchangeable right if we have a global labor market now in the old days and in the time here 
this happened to workers. Workers were forced to move around and be dis, dis unrooted from their homes, ripped from their the places they were comfortable to places where they would be uncomfortable but more easily exploitable. That was true of the coolie trade. It was true of the slave trade, the internal slave trade, uh, which of course thrived in the 1840s and 1850s, um, but also specific contract labor, something that Twain doesn't really want to talk about or doesn't get into at all in this story. It's like missing. It's like a big, as much as, like when you think of how intimately Twain could talk about the miners and the lives in Virginia City, and he seems to sort of blinkered by class, plantation work, inequality, and things like that in Hawaii. It's it's kind of striking. He talks a little bit about the Chinese, but I'll, I'll get to that in a bit. But th this line here, he says, go away from home and then you have to work. That may have been true at one point for those minorities who were restless. But now it's true for everyone because no one's got a home anymore. We're all dislodged from our, from our homes, right? We all go to college in another town, pick up a job wherever we go, we want, and then, without having a community, it's not we can't go back and live with our parents. If we're away from them, right? If we're living somewhere else, I guess we can always kind of shuffle our way back. But the more we move, the harder it gets to do that. And if you aren't in a foreign country, or a, a place you don't have family connections or friends. Right, work is the only way you have to survive. So you have you're much more likely to have to sell yourself in the market. So obviously, it's not comparable to forcing people to leave Virginia and, and work down in Mississippi or whatever as slaves. But capital profits off of a labor force that's that doesn't have ties to the community, that's detached. Right, the slave trade benefited the internal slave trade benefited slavery not just in moving slaves to where they weren't needed so much to where they were needed to produce cotton but also because it dis it broke up communities it broke up families that was not an inadvertent side effect of slavery it was part of how slavery was maintained right if you didn't have family if you didn't have connections you lost your survival network and then you had to maybe rebuild it you didn't have your church you didn't have your religious network you didn't have your extended family you were just one of many other slaves, right? And and yeah, who who do you have to rely on? Just yourself. So, you know, Mark Twain seems to have a lot of acquaintances. I don't get the sense he has that many friends in his in the works that I've read so far. Like no lifelong friends. I'm sure he did. I'm not, I'm not trying to say he didn't, but based on his books, you get the sense of he's, he doesn't really have that, those. They're just people that go in and out of his life because he's the migrant. He's the one who's always moving around. All right. Now, obviously, when we get to his half year in Hawaii, five months or so, he's working as a journalist and a lecturer at this point, giving his kind of comical lectures. And, of course, we're given a kind of a darker side of U.S. empire. Um, as it's like con conquering these islands slowly and surely. But there is still a, a Hawaiian government that the Americans have to contend with. But, and this is some continuity in the story. I mean, there, there is a connection between American expansion through the Great West to California and then the expansion outside of it to the Pacific. Uh, 
right? You, the dislodgement, the, the, the disempowerment of, of indigenous people being kind of the common story. It's not one that Mark Twain tells either in Hawaii or, or Nevada that much, though. All right. That's that's a lot of that's been projection by me. I think there's a few Indians that show up here and there a little bit more in Hawaii. We get a look at the native people, but this is before they're fully extracted. Um, but we're only seeing the frontier here really from the perspective of white men looking at at colonized people. He has a few asides here and there about the Chinese. But he's basically repeating model minority kind of ideas. So that idea of a model minority was there even in the past, uh, which is kind of funny because if the model minority was a theme in the 70s, 1870s, I mean, 1880s, why Chinese exclusion? It's like that's how like racist Americans were towards towards Chinese, that even if they didn't seem to be causing trouble, um, well-behaved and hardworking. That's the cliche of of the Chinese in America. And I don't know if it's changed that much. But why the Chinese Exclusion Act, right? Well, obviously, I think we know, right? It's, it was job competition was what drove that. It was those very behaviors, well-behaved and hardworking, that probably made them more of a threat to the working class, the white working class. If they were not so well-behaved and they were willing to join unions, that, that could have been an advantage you know, to white workers in the region. It's just like when the solution in, in the South towards employers using black workers to strike break was just to bring black people into the union, right? But Chinese didn't seem at the time to be that interested in that. And this, you know, hardworking, of course, they're easily exploitable. So they become uh, a resource for capital. And again, now you see that in Deadwood too, right? Isn't the Chinese workers brought in to uh, to work the mines because they don't want to hire the local uh, white workers? But in Hawaii, we see the full extent of American commercial power over other people through his tour of the islands, and he's really seeing this through the eyes of this white commercial ruling class. He visits the plantations, but we don't get any plantation workers. There's a careful set-aside retelling of the story of the killing of Captain Cook, which in a way is kind of like one of Hawaii's, one of the Pacific's first blows against imperialism. Of course, Magellan dies in what would become the Philippines. Cook dies in Hawaii. I, I mean, I think these stories are kind of, there's something to be said about this, that there is resistance to imperialism in the Pacific. That's a story that's not often told. Um, and there's a labor history of the Pacific that still, I think, roughly, that still needs to be told. It hasn't been told. I, I tried to do that in my graduate school years, and, and I guess I'm to blame for not pursuing this more, but there it is. Maybe someday. Um, but Twain's not really interested in the story of economic exploitation in the empire. In fact, that later parts of this book feel much more like Innocence Abroad, where it's just like, oh, I went here, I saw this. Uh, isn't it interesting how the king how the king dresses? Isn't it interesting how their court is? Um, now, he is acutely aware of one point here, and that's like a culture war between missionaries and Hawaiian society. Um 
but we see it through the eyes of Christian converts, but not really plantation workers. And all I really want to say about this, I guess to kind of wrap up my thoughts about, about roughing it, is, of course, Twain will later be a very active and very vocal anti-imperialist. And we don't get that feeling here. And that seems definitely to be something that comes later in his thinking. He's, he kind of reverts to his tourism trope, which maybe makes sense because that's uh, how he got his name. But I find roughing it more compelling in the earlier chapters, or the earlier three-fourths, when it's about him in the midst of this brief moment of, of Western history when, when the frontier was still unsettled before it would be settled by the forces of capital in the state. But, so I guess that's, that's going to be it about roughing it. I really do urge you to, to read this book yourself. It's uh, one of my favorite books by Mark Twain, and I think the earlier parts are really hilarious. I, I, I don't care much for the end of the book in that it just sort of revert back to what we've come across in Innocence Abroad. It doesn't seem quite as fresh. But uh, that said, I think there's still things to think about in terms of how American empire projected itself into the Pacific and how Mark Twain is sort of an observer or even an, someone taking advantage of this. So um, that's, that's it for now. Um, so in the next episode, I'll begin looking at uh, the volume of Library of America called Historical Romances by Mark Twain. And what does that mean? Well, it's referring to um, medieval Renaissance Europe stories. He wrote. He wrote three of them. So it makes sense they put these together. But they they are three unconnected novels that Mark Twain Twain wrote that all deal with Europe in various ways. So one is uh, the Prince and the Pauper. Then a Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court. Then uh, his personal recollections of Joan of Arc, which is kind of historical fiction uh, or a. Uh, a literary fictional or a, a f literary historical reconstruction. Maybe that's the best. I think maybe you can call it a, it's kind of a fictionalized. I think there's like dialogue and things in it. It's been a while since I read it. I did read, I did read it a number of years ago, but we're going to start with uh, Prince and the Pauper, probably two episodes on that. Then I would guess four on Connecticut Yankee, maybe three. And then probably four or five on uh, Joan of Arc. So that's what's coming up ahead for the next, I guess, eight or nine episodes. Uh, and then we'll jump back to the travel log. So after that, I guess we'll do uh, the journey around the equator stuff. Then we'll jump back to novels, looking at the Gilded Age and the later Tom Sawyer novels, then to the stories. So, uh, it's uh, always nice to close a volume and, and put it back on the shelf and, and move on to the next one. So um, that, that leaves me in a good mood. Uh, I hope you, uh, if you're reading along with me, will we'll keep up and uh, jump into The Prince and the Pauper if you haven't already read it. It's, it's a good one. So uh, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. I just can't wait to get on the road again. The life I love is making music with my friends. Wait to get on the road again